Have you ever said to God, I didn't sign up for this? I'm in a tough spot, God. Life's crazy, stuff's happening that I didn't expect. And you know what? I just didn't sign up for this. God, you didn't tell me that my spouse was going to cheat on me. You didn't tell me my company was going to close or downsize and I was going to lose my job. You didn't tell me that my child was going to be born with these defects and issues. You didn't tell me those things, God, and I didn't sign up for this. And so what do you do when things happen in your life that you didn't sign up for? In studying Ecclesiastes, one thing that I've learned is this. God is weak on the details. In your life, he often doesn't tell you a lot. Think about Moses. God said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. So Moses went in there and he said, Pharaoh, let my people go. God, you didn't tell me that Pharaoh was going to try to kill me, that he was then going to send 600 hitmen on chariots chasing me off, trying to get me. You didn't tell me. You could have helped a brother out and given me some of those details. But God is often weak on the details. And when he's weak on the details, he tells you to draw on him for wisdom. That's really why Ecclesiastes was written, to show us how to draw on the wisdom that you need to walk through those times and make tough decisions in your life because God doesn't often reveal the details. So how do I deal with life when I don't have the details? I can get all the information in the world, right? We live in an information-driven world, and it's right at our fingertips. I can get information, but I'm weak on the details of, uh, I'm weak on wisdom. Information is everywhere. Um, so I, I went this week online and uh, just sitting there thinking, all right, what am I going to search? I don't know why. Justin Bieber. Type in Justin Bieber, okay? Justin Bieber at that particular time had 299 million hits on the internet, okay? I can't explain that. I don't know why. So then I was like, okay, let's see how Justin Timberlake compares. Justin Bieber, Justin Timberlake, you're going to get a little insight into how this mind works. 80 million hits on the internet, Justin Timberlake. So then I typed in the Timberwolves, 53 million hits. And then I was like, well, let's do the NBA, 1.3 billion hits on the internet for the NBA. And then I typed in the Bible, 248 hits for the Bible. So if you believe the internet, Justin Bieber is more important than the Bible. See, there's all kinds of information out there. Even Einstein said, information does not equal wisdom. And a lot of times, even as information increases, wisdom sometimes decreases. 
And that's the point of chapter 7. In this chapter, there's all these little snippets of wisdom, and and it's so good. But today we're just going to settle in those verses that Pastor Matthew read. And and I just want to give you two precious truths about wisdom. And the first one is this. Wisdom helps you rest in what God is doing in your life. Wisdom helps you rest in what God is doing in your life. When you don't have all the details, wisdom can help you rest. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. So in verse 13, he says, consider. And this this word in in the Hebrew here doesn't just mean to kind of think it over or mull it over, right? It's a word that means to draw the right conclusions about God. When I think about God, I need to come to the right conclusions. That's what it means to consider. So what conclusions should I draw? Because there's going to be days where my path is straight. And there's good days, right? Good things happening. And then there's going to be days where the path is crooked and the road is bent. And he's saying God is sovereignly in control of our world down to the tiniest detail in your life. He's just not telling you the details. And if we can get that truth in our hearts, if you can get that truth, it's a game changer. Uh, It's like in 10th grade, I had biology. And um, it it was a difficult class for me, mostly because my brother, who went on to be a, um, get his doctorate in biochemistry, was in the class a few years before me. So the expectations for me were a little bit higher than what they should have been because we are completely different in this regard. But I had this biology class, and we would do our textbook work, and we would learn, and then every now and then we had a lab. And you would go to the lab, and in the lab they would do these controlled experiments, right? Where we're doing the experiment, and the teacher is standing there, and they know what the outcome of the experiment is going to be if you do the experiment correctly, They understand what chemicals react with what or what happens when you do this or that. So, but they knew that what the outcome would be, but we didn't have a clue. And I think that's the way life sometimes is for us. It's a a controlled experiment where God is in control and he knows the details and he can track the details and he knows the outcome. But sometimes we don't have a clue. And sometimes God's going to put those bends in our lives. Crooked places where we can't see what's around the corner. We can't see what's going on. And the idea in this passage of the crooked things is the, is the idea of troubles and difficulties that might come our way. And we don't like that. We hate it when those things come into our lives. And we can't change it, but they're there. Why are they there? Because God ordained it to be. And everybody, I don't care who you are, everybody has to deal with crooked paths in their lives. I look around the room. Look, I started thinking about this passage two months ago, knowing that I was going to preach today. 
I had no idea that Leanne Lehman would be laying in the hospital in Morgantown battling cancer. I didn't know that. And I look around this room and I see the rest. Uh, I, one, of the, one of the advantages of having been here a while is we know each other's histories, right? We know what we've walked through. Travis and Lauren, when Lauren got pregnant with Aspen, what an exciting thing. They didn't know what turn that would take. They didn't know the direction that would go. And so many of you, di- children who, who, have, who have gone the wrong way, and done the wrong things. And the, just the path that life can take. There's so many of us. And, and, and nobody can escape it, right? And so you can have two responses to this when it comes into your life. You can either get frustrated and quit and say, God, I didn't sign up for this and I'm out of here. Or you can rest in the sovereign God who put the crooked place in your path. Those are the two options. Give up. Throw up your hands. Say, that's it. I'm walking away from my faith. I'm not trusting you. I'm just doing what I I can't do it. Or know that God is saying that the crooked path, the crooked things, always, always, always are for your good and his glory. And if you get that, if it can become the foundation for how you see God, then you can find rest. And you can say, I don't know why this suffering has come. I don't know why I have to walk through these troubles, but I believe that God is up to something. I don't know what, but I can trust him. And if I can trust him, I can rest because I believe that this is true. If you're not resting, it's because you're not trusting. And I need to be able to say, God, I believe that you are planning these things in my life for my good and your glory. Tim Keller wrote a book called The Prodigal Prophet. It talks about Abraham in that book. And, and basically it says that Abraham's whole life can be summed up in three conversations with God. In Genesis chapter 12, God, Abraham, I want you to leave your country and go to a new land. Abraham, where? God, I'll tell you later, go. Genesis 17, God, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham, how? God, I'll tell you later, just trust. Genesis 22, God, Abraham, offer your son as a sacrifice on the top of the mountain. Abraham, why? God, I'll tell you later, just climb. That's Abraham's life in three simple conversations. Go, trust, climb. That's all he told him. He didn't have the details. He didn't have the details. That's all he told him. And that's your life. Go, trust, climb. And you've got to decide, am I out of here? I didn't sign up for this. Or am I going to go? Am I going to trust? 
Am I going to climb? Am I going to find rest in you? And again, it, it doesn't matter who you are. I think sometimes we look at other people's lives and we think, oh, what a, what a blessed life, what a picture-perfect life, right? Especially if you spend any time on social media um, because that's the way people often portray their life. But it doesn't matter who you are. Everybody's life is going to have crooked places. No one has a perfect life. There are hard days ahead for you and me. They're going to be there. In fact, verse 14 tells us this. Look what it said. In days of prosperity, be happy, but on the hard days, take God into account because God has made both days and you won't be able to control any of it. Some days the sun is shining. Work is good. I got the top down. I'm at peace. My marriage is good. Things are humming along. It's great. And then other days, I hate my job. Why is it always raining? Troubled in your soul, your marriage is strained, there's difficulty on the horizon. And you know what? God said, I sent that to you also. It's hard to understand, but Solomon is saying that it's God in control of both days. He's going to do it for your good and his glory. And you say, but it's so hard. It's so hard and God feels absent. He feels distant. Except the Bible says he's not. Let, let me help you with this a little more. He made a crooked place in the road for his own son. Who killed Jesus? You might say the Jews. You'd be right. You might say the Romans killed Jesus. You'd be right again. You might say I killed Jesus. That would be right. Because the Bible says that's true. But the Bible also says in Isaiah 53, 10, the Lord was pleased to crush his son. Pleased. The Lord was pleased to crush his own son. You see, God took a horribly crooked thing like the cross. And he did something glorious with it. And he made a way. And we have to hold on to that. God can take a crooked thing and use it for our good and for his glory. And he may be weak on the details, but I can trust him. Because wisdom in that will help me rest. And I would say that most of us could look back on our lives and see a track record of God's goodness and faithfulness. When I didn't know the details. Again, I look around the room. When Kendra was diagnosed with aplastic anemia. And she's just a kid and she doesn't know what's going on. And this is a horrible thing that people don't recover from. She didn't know the details. That has shaped her life and her faith forever. Those things do that for us. Rest, rest, that God is in control. That's number one. Let me give you number two. There's just two, so we're moving right along, okay? Number two, wisdom helps you battle the fallacy of karma. I didn't really know the best word to use there, but karma seemed like a good word, okay? Look look at verse 15. I've seen everything in my lifetime of futility, and futility there is often translated emptiness or vanity 
But it really has this idea of no control. That's what it really means. I've seen everything in my lifetime of no control. I don't have control over anything. If you think you have control over your life, then you are thinking wrong. Because you don't. And so he said, I've seen it all in my lifetime of no control. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Let me explain this because wisdom will help us battle this false idea of karma. All religions have a belief in karma, right? The idea that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And in every major religion in the world, there's a belief at some level in karma except Christianity, right? And karma says that everything you do, you're either getting some sort of credit because you did something good or you're getting some sort of debit in your life because you did something bad, right? And people are trying to end up on the plus side. And I think most of us in this room, most Christians in this room will say, well, I don't believe in karma. At least I hope you would say that, okay? I I don't believe in karma. It's a stupid idea. It's not biblical for one thing. But unfortunately, sometimes I think we, we think and even live a little bit like we do believe in karma. Let, let me give you an example. You can probably complete this sentence. When something bad happens to someone that you think is wicked, what do you say? You say they got exactly what they had coming to them, deserved, what they should have gotten, right? That kind of thinking is the kind of thinking that buys into this idea of karma. And then when something bad happens to a good person, oh, they were so young. This should never have happened to somebody who's so good. They don't deserve that. It doesn't make sense. And sometimes we fall into that trap of thinking like that. We say we don't believe in karma, but we end up thinking that that's kind of how life works. And Solomon is saying he sees bad things happening to good people and good things happening to bad people, wicked people. That's what he's saying in verse 15. So how do you deal with that? He goes on and he tells us in the next couple of verses, 16 and 17, right? Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and be a fool. Why should you die before your time? When you first look at this, it seems like he's saying, well, you should just be somewhere in the middle between being good and bad, right? But that's not what he's saying. When he says, do not be overly good, he's talking about a certain kind of righteousness that is wrong and is sinful. We would call it a self-righteousness. And he's saying, don't get this self-righteous attitude in this world and think that somehow you've earned God's goodness. Somehow I can be good enough and I've earned it from God. Don't think that. And so many times when I have gospel conversations with people and I'm sharing Jesus with people, they always think, 
I'm just good enough to make it. Right? If you've had those conversations about your faith with people, there's always this, well, my grandfather was a pastor and I went to Sunday school when I was a kid and, and I do pretty good things. And, right, they're, they're like, I'm, I'm not a killer. I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm not doing drugs. I, I'm living up to this certain standard that I've given myself and I'm making it. And here's the problem with thinking like that. Think about in Luke 18 when Jesus compares the tax collector to the Pharisee. They both go into the temple and the tax collector comes in and he can't even look up to God. He is so self-aware of how he is not good. He lowers his head and he beats his chest and he cries out to God, be merciful on me, I'm a sinner. And then the Pharisee goes in the temple and he lifts up his head and he holds out his hands and he says, man, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. I'm not sinning like him. I'm a good person. I go to church. I keep the rules. And the Bible says that the tax collector walked away justified. That's a strong word in the Bible. He was made right before God. And he walked away that way. And Solomon is saying that there's a righteousness that is wrong like the Pharisees to the point that it brings death if they hoped in it. It's a righteousness that says, I'm trusting in myself. The tax collector didn't trust in himself. He said, God, I need your mercy. And when you do that, you walk away justified. But if you're like the Pharisee and you say to God, I'm not like these other guys. Okay, I'm good enough. I'm meeting this standard I've set for myself. I believe God just says... That doesn't do anything for me. He's not looking for that. So do you trust yourself? Or do you trust me? Do you trust completely in the shed blood of my son Jesus? Have you placed your faith, all your faith, in that? And not your good works? Hoping that God will pay you off for the good things that you've done? No. We have to trust completely in what Christ did on the cross for us. And it's all your faith in that. So the tax collector said, I'm just not going to trust myself for anything. And that's the spirit we should have. I'm not good enough. I am wicked and evil, and I know my heart. And aside from the grace of God, I have no hope. And then the opposite. He goes on and he says, don't be overly wicked. And what does that mean? It means don't give yourself over to wickedness. Don't quit in your fight against Satan and sin. Because the evil one will come after you relentlessly. And don't say... I can't be good enough, so I'm going to go the opposite direction, and I'm just going to give up. I'm just going to give up. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to pursue these wicked things and let them be a part of my life. And Solomon says, that's dangerous. In fact, he said, do you want to die before your time? It leads to an early death. 
And we need to know that there's a huge difference between sinning and repenting and sinning as a lifestyle, as a habit. You're all going to mess up. You're all going to sin. You're all going to struggle with temptation and failure. Everybody in here, including this guy, is going to struggle with some kind of sin. It might be greed. It might be lust. It might be lying. I I don't know what it is. You can ask the Lord. He will show you. But whatever it is, we all struggle. You struggle and I struggle. But that's the point, isn't it? Are you struggling? That's the question. Have you given yourself over to it? Or are you getting up every day and are you praying, God, give me victory? Are you in the scripture saying, God, what do you say about this sin and this struggle in my life? Because you're trying to fight it and you're crying out to God. And you're in the battle each day and you want to be repentant. As opposed to just going the other way and giving yourself up to it. Solomon said, don't die before your time. So you see the difference? We enter the battle each day. And we need to call on God's spirit to help us. Wisdom will help us fight this false idea of karma. Let me see if I can kind of pull this all together for us. Because here's what I really want you to walk away with today. Right? Most people give the big idea at the beginning. I'm kind of giving it to you at the end. In order to keep growing in life and faith, we have to keep going. To keep growing, you have to keep going. Remember Abraham? Go. Trust. Climb. Keep at it. That's the idea. Let me illustrate this. I was traveling a couple years back, and I just had way too much time on my hand because I found myself at one of the little bookstores looking through a book called The Fish of the Atlantic. Okay, try to contain your excitement. All right. The Fish of the Atlantic. And there's this little chapter in the book called Salmon versus Cod. Okay, now I'm not buying this book, but I got some time. So I'm doing what they don't want you to do. I'm standing there kind of reading through the book. All right. And in the early 1900s, Cod was the most popular fish to eat. And it wasn't until about 1950 when salmon kind of took over. And salmon's probably one of the most popular fish to eat now. But, but cod was the thing. Everybody wanted it. And they, they would catch this cod in the Atlantic Ocean. And they would, you know, they would cook it and serve it. And it was, it was really good. And everybody liked it. And people on the West Coast wanted some of that cod. And people on the East Coast wanted to make money sending cod to the West Coast. And so they thought, we'll ship it out there in trains. And so they put it on ice, put it in these cars, put it on ice, kept it cold, kept adding ice all the way out there. And when it got out there and they cooked it, it didn't taste right. And the texture was bad. It was, it was, it was funny and no, nobody wanted to eat it. And so they figured, okay, we've got to send it out there alive. And so what they did was they built these 
pools inside these boxcars, these big pools. And they put, like literally, they wanted to send as many as they could. They would put thousands of cod in these pools, in these boxcars. And then they would ship it out there. And when it got out there, they took it and they cooked it and they served it. And it still didn't taste right. And it wasn't, it, it had lost its texture. And they couldn't figure out what was wrong. It, it, it was weird. It, it wasn't like it tasted fresh. Now, at this point, I'm thinking, I got to find out what's going on with this cod, right? So don't excuse the pun, but I'm hooked on this, uh, on this little chapter in the book, okay? Got to figure out why. See, you want to know why too, don't you? Yeah, all right. And so they couldn't figure it out. Why wouldn't it be fresh? How can you be alive and not be fresh? How can you be swimming and not be fresh? How can you go through life and not be fresh? Here's one for us. How can you have abundant life and not be fresh? How can you look fresh and not be fresh? But when the people on the West Coast tasted it, it didn't taste fresh. So in a last-ditch effort to make some money, somebody came up with an idea I love how inventive we are in America. They took the cod, they put them in the pool, in the train car, and they put three catfish in with these thousands of cod. See, catfish are a natural predator to cod. They will chase them and catch them and eat them. And so for that whole trip out west, the cod had to be swimming. They had to be moving because the catfish were coming after them. And when they got them there, this time, they were fresh. And that's the way that they sent them out to the West Coast all through the early 1900s. Because in order to be fresh, they had to be in an environment of catfish. Can I tell you this morning that the Lord knows exactly what kind of catfish to put in your tank. And he does it to keep us fresh and growing. Some of you aren't fresh. He put a catfish in your tank. You're on a crooked path. You don't know what's going on. You don't know where you're going. You don't know the details. How is this going to end? What is going to happen? He put a catfish in your tank. Sometimes we need that catfish. What does that mean? Well, for one, it's pretty uncomfortable. Nobody wants that. It might mean being on the run a little bit, being chased. And I know we spend a lot of time praying, God, I don't want any catfish in my tank. I want my life to be just like this. And God says, I'm going to give you a catfish to keep you fresh and growing. And it's going to force you to see me and rest in me. Pharaoh was Israel's catfish. He chased them all through the wilderness until he got them to the Red Sea. 
We know what happened then. But he made them face their fear factor, didn't he? He put them between a body of water that they saw no way to get across and an army that wanted to kill them. That's what he did. And I want you to know this. For a while, when the catfish is in the tank, fear and faith have to exist in the same space. It's okay to say, Lord, I'm worried, but I trust you. God, I can't sleep, but I know you're there and I know you're in control. And at some point, that shifts and you're a little bit less worried and you're sleeping a little bit more and your faith and your confidence in what God's doing grows and it brings rest and peace. And you can say, this situation is overwhelming, but God, you are greater. And so... In all the crooked places, and all the trouble, all of those things drive us to the Lord. And why do you think God does it that way? I don't know. His ways are greater than my ways. But I do know that this is true. I do know that when I see the outcome that was for my good and his glory... I say, God, this was not by my power. And the world around me looks at that situation and says, that could only have been by his power. Thank God for the catfish that he puts in our life. We don't like them. We don't want them there. But at the end of the day, we know that God is in control. And he did what he did. And he did it because he loves us. And he makes a way. It may not be the way I want but he makes a way. So Lord, thank you so much for the precious truths that Solomon has given us. God, I know there are people in this room today that feel like they're catfish as big as a shark. There are people in this room today that are overwhelmed. Family members that are in distress pain and hurt so much that we don't know and life is out of control God I pray for those people in this room that they would know that you are in control that you are sovereign above it all And God, I pray we won't waste the opportunities that we have when we're in the middle of troubles. The opportunities to show who you are, your goodness, your love, your kindness, your mercy. For the world around us to see that Jesus really is a difference maker and that my relationship with him brings peace and rest. 
God, I pray this church could be a light to this community because we live like this. Help us to go, trust, and climb. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.